a mother had raised her children to adulthood, and she had been a homemaker for her entire life up to that point. She decided now that her children were grown and on their own that she was going to enter the, the workforce outside of the home, and she began to look at resumes, and you could fill out the part, you know, address and phone number and email and references and those sorts of things, but she got to the part that talked about, asked for experience and accomplishments. And she tried to think of all these people that have been in the workforce all these years and what they could write down, that they had led all these initiatives and done all these projects and things, and so she decided to get creative. And this is what she listed. Master's degree and Ph.D. in patience. Familial law enforcer. Non-television activity coordinator. English language educator. Playground medic. President of waste management. Tantrum and meltdown negotiator. Search and rescue small plastic pieces unit. Chief monster hunter. College application advisor. Doll physician. Archaeologist specializing in underbed and inside closet digs. Backyard safety commissioner. Toddler tantrum wrestling champion. Playdate social secretary. CEO of the Department of Make-Believe, Manners Expert, Fashion Stylist and Consultant, Professor of Imagination Studies, Sleep Scientist, working mostly on night shifts, Teen Angst Psychoanalyst, Captain of the Soccer Mom Teachers Cheerleading Squad, Dental Hygienist, Toothbrushing Instructor, Keeper of Top Secret Secrets, Pinky Swear, Personal Chauffeur and Expert Driver, birthday party planner, and hairstylist specializing in pigtails and wiggly clients. Mother's Day for a lot of people is special. We understand that for some, Mother's Day is maybe bittersweet. We understand that for others, Mother's Day may even be a little bit difficult. And no matter which of those fits where you might happen to be, we can all understand how someone could fit into any of those particular categories. But no matter what your relationship may be or may have been with with your mother, there can be no doubt that mothers have an influence on our life. And godly mothers have the greatest influence. That's not to say that every Christian lady who has uh, who is a godly mother has children now grown who always remain faithful to the Lord every step of the way. But we also know that there's absolutely no way for children throughout their lives to forget the example and teaching that a godly mother continually sets before them when she puts God first in all of her ways. And the Bible certainly has a great deal to say to mothers, both by way of teaching as by way and by way of example. And it's the latter of those two that we're going to think about this morning, the way of example. But before we get to the lady we're going to be studying this morning, consider the son to whom she gave birth. Two books of the Bible are named after him. He anointed not only the first king of Israel, King Saul, but he also anointed the second king of Israel, King David. He had a backbone to stand up to King Saul when that king was not following the way of God and was trusting his own judgment, the judgments of the people over what God had said. He had a great deal of influence over the people, to say the least. There are other people in the Old Testament who may cast a longer shadow, people like Moses or David or others. But if you wanted to make a list of the most important or at least the most influential people of the Old Testament, you could not get very far on that list 
before you would have to name Samuel. Though his life does not cross the pages of Scripture as long as some other people do, his influence is felt continually for generations throughout the Old Testament. But part of that influence comes from the woman who gave him birth, the lady known as Hannah. Her name, Hannah, comes from a form of the Hebrew word that means grace. And she certainly exemplifies that description. And though she only steps onto the pages of Scripture for just a couple of chapters, her life is one that Christian ladies continue to try to emulate. This is totally by coincidence. I did not plan this, and I didn't even realize it until last night. But if you are following the yearly Bible reading schedule that we have laid out in the the foyer at the beginning of the year, your daily Bible reading for today is 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. On Mother's Day, the story of Hannah. I never thought about that till last night. I was like, why didn't I think of that? I could have looked smart. It was totally coincidence. But it is fascinating that we just happen to be reading, if you please, her life story or her biography found in Scripture on the day that we are thinking about her in our sermon for the morning. A lady named Edith Dean wrote about Hannah and said, The woman who personifies the ideal in motherhood in the Old Testament is Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And she would go on to write, Hannah's story, told in the first two chapters of the first Bible book bearing her son's name, breathes of her love and care for her firstborn, the worthy son of a worthy mother. We don't have time this morning to look at every verse of 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. But I want to use her example this morning to think about the influence that a godly mother has. And just notice with me five things that we see mostly in chapter 1 that Hannah does or exemplifies that really all Christian ladies should seek to exemplify, but for certain, those who are striving to be a godly mother, a godly grandmother, or just a godly lady who wants to influence children for what is right. Number one, I want you to notice that Hannah was gracious through trials. When we're introduced to Hannah on the pages of Scripture, all is not well with her. In fact, partially because things are not well with her is why we see her exemplify her namesake. I mentioned her name in part means grace. And you see that in what she's going through and how she handles it. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 5, it tells us that her husband, a man named Elkanah, gave Hannah a double portion out of his love for her. But then the verse ends with the situation by telling us that the Lord had closed her womb. Now, we don't know if that is meant to be that God in some providential or miraculous way had closed Hannah's womb and then would open it. Or if this is written from Hannah's perspective or an earthly perspective because she could not have children now looking back as saying it's as if the Lord closed her womb. I think it's the first, but it could be either one, certainly. But whichever it is, this was a great situation for her to face, a great trial for her to face. Remember the culture in which she lived. Even now, there are ladies who would like to have children, maybe cannot, and they struggle with that. They grieve with, with that. They have difficulty with that. But think about the culture in which she lived. And it would have gone even further than that. You see, in that ancient culture, to so many, a woman who was married was only valuable, or at least her greatest value, was seen in the fact that she could bear children. Beyond that, if she could bear a son, that even gave her greater value. I hope we've moved beyond that. But that's the culture in which Hannah was having this difficulty. It was a real trial in her life. This was not just something that she just wanted in her life. This was something that was a real trial in her life. 
But then Hannah also faced more than that. Elkanah, her husband, had another wife, you may recall. Her name was Penina. And we're told about Penina that Penina was able to have children. In fact, at the end of verse 4, the text tells us that Penina had sons, plural, and daughters, plural. So she had at least, it would seem, four children. But even more than that, the other wife, Penina, is called Hannah's rival down in verse 6 and provokes Hannah just because of the way she, she is, because of the way things are. The text again in verse 6 says that she used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. And so Hannah faces not only the situation itself, but she faces one that the Scripture calls her rival who is just continually barbing her for this situation. The phrase grievous or provoked her grievously, it's kind of interesting. In the original Hebrew language, it's actually the same word consecutively. It literally states that her rival vexed, vexed her. It's kind of as if the Bible is saying that her rival took this irritating or this vexing to the nth degree. It was an an ongoing thing. And she continually pressed that into Hannah's spirit, that, that that's what's going on, that Hannah can't have children and that's just a, an awful thing, but I can. And you can just see it going on. And yet with all that going on, what is Hannah's disposition? Well, certainly she's sad and certainly she's hurting, but her disposition is one of kindness and grace. A graceful disposition does not mean that emotions are removed from the situation. A gracious disposition does not mean we won't face struggle. But Hannah does not just lash out in the middle of all of this. She doesn't lash out at her husband. She doesn't lash out even at Penina. And she doesn't lash out at God. Instead, down in verse 11, she simply asks God to help her and not forget her. We'll get to the text of that in a moment. But I want you just to notice the disposition behind that. Moms, there's going to be trials in life. There's no doubt about that. Being godly does not remove sickness. It doesn't remove struggle. But what being godly does do it provides a framework for how to handle those trials in life. You have an example in this lady, Hannah, facing a difficult situation, yet doing so with faith and with graciousness. Yes, she was hurting, but there was still a disposition that, that ladies of all types need to emulate in their life when they face trials. And your children see how you handle those times of trial. It's not that you're not sad. It's not that you're not upset. It's not that you don't get angry. But it's a graciousness behind that that Hannah displays that is a beautiful example. Number two, Hannah also is an example because she was a prayerful woman. Now, I know it's simply a function of how the Bible is given to us in chapters and verses. But I think it's interesting that Hannah's life is on the pages of Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 1 Samuel chapter 2. And in each of those two chapters, you have a prayer that she prays. It's just a function of how the Bible comes to us. But it is interesting that both chapters that contain her life have a prayer. The more famous one is the one that she prays. In fact, we read it this morning for our scripture reading. It's a very brief prayer, but it's the prayer she prays asking God to remember her and and to give her a son. You may recall this is the one where she's praying, but nothing's coming out vocally. And because of that, the high priest Eli accuses her of being drunk. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. But she is that moved with emotion, but also that deep in prayer that she's just mouthing words but i want you to consider what's contained in that very brief prayer all of the prayer is found in just half of verse 11 but notice that it contains so many valuable things about prayer first of all it contains the phrase "O lord of hosts she honored she revered god she showed respect to him 
It really does not matter what type of prayer we are praying. God should always be honored and revered in our prayers. We may not say it as eloquently as Hannah does here, but there should always be a reverence for God in our prayers. Then she prays, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. I want you to notice that she humbly lays out before God these problems. There's an humbleness in her prayer by calling her God's servant. And then she makes her request, but will give to your servant a son. There's nothing wrong with stating in prayer our specific desires. She does not just pray, God, help me. And that would be a wonderful prayer, would it not? But she has something specific in mind. And she's not afraid to state specifically, here is what I desire with all of my being. And then she prays, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. She states her dedication to God. In that part of the prayer, that thing about the razor touching the head had to do with the Old Testament, the Jewish Nazarites, those who were dedicated to God. Sometimes they were dedicated to God for a certain period of time. And part of that vow was not shaving the head. Some some of them were set apart from the very beginning. Samson being one, maybe the most famous one, who was set apart from birth. And part of that vow was not shaving the head. But she says that's going to happen to Samuel all the days of his life. He'll be dedicated from birth. There's a statement of dedication in there. But in that just that short prayer. But did you notice what followed that? Notice the first phrase of verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord. Now, I don't know if that means that all we have in verse 11 is just a portion of her prayer. And there's really more to it. Or or if that means that she prayed the same prayer or something similar to it just over and over and over again. I don't know which one it means. But whichever it is, it shows us that Hannah did not just, if you please, get on her knees one time and say a one sentence prayer. And that was the end of it. She continually brought these thoughts and prayers and desires before God. Isn't that what the scriptures tell us to do? Pray without ceasing, for example. First Thessalonians chapter five and verse 17. But that's not the only time we see Hannah pray, is it? Because if you may have to turn over a page, it may be on the same opening in your Bible. But if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, the first 10 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 2 contain the other prayer that Hannah prays. And it's a prayer filled with thanksgiving, a prayer filled with praise. You might think of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Remember a moment ago we said 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says pray without ceasing. But what does the very next verse say? Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of Christ, will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Hannah exemplifies that. Would you take the time to read this prayer with me? First Samuel 2, beginning of verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven. But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes 
and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Folks, when I read those words, all I can say is, wow. That is a prayer from the very depths of a soul. And for your own time, your own study sometime, take the time sometime to read this prayer found in 1 Samuel chapter 2 of Hannah. And then read the prayer that Mary prays when she finds out she's going to give birth to the Messiah. It is remarkable how many phrases or at least allusions are almost word for word between what Mary prays and what Hannah prays, which I think shows us that Mary knew her Bible. Mary knew the Old Testament. But Hannah here prays this absolute prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Moms, do your children ever see you pray or hear you pray? Do they see you pray when you're in distress? Do they see you pray words of prayer, excuse me, praise and honor and thanksgiving when when there is a, a remembrance of the goodness of God? This lady of grace did. Number three, we learn from Hannah that she knew to follow right. We won't spend much time on this point, but I get this from Hannah's interaction with the high priest, Eli. When Eli, the priest, charges her in First Samuel chapter one and verse 14 with being drunk, Hannah could have either just become just cruel toward him or she could have cowered away in fear and ran out of the room or whatever, because this was a man of great influence. But instead, Hannah knew that she had done nothing wrong. And she stood for what was right, but she did so in a very respectful way. Notice what you read in 1 Samuel 1, verses 15 and 16. No, my Lord, I am not, excuse me, I am a woman troubled with spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. By the way, the word vexation found at the end of that Statement is the same word found earlier. We see that Penina had vexed her vexingly. It's the same word. Maybe that irritating or that vexing is beginning to take its toll on Hannah's life. But did you notice that she was still very respectful, but she knew what the real reality was? She had done nothing wrong, but she stood before this man who was of high leadership and great respect. And she simply stated the truth. But there's more. Because once Eli had realized his mistake and done what was right, he he recognized the mistake and and gave a blessing to her. Notice what her reaction is down in verse 18. She said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She had been falsely accused of something very strong and real. And now she's sort of in the position of, I've done what's right here, and you haven't. You've made the mistake. And yet, what does she do? She still just shows respect. She does what's right. It's remarkable how her gracious attitude flows through all this. But here, she's standing for what's right in both ways. I've done nothing wrong, but even now the tables have sort of been turned. I'm not going to hold this against you. I'm just going to be the servant that God has called me to be. Please, moms, don't just know what's right and don't just do what's right. Stand for what is right. Let your children see you hold to the truth. Number four, Hannah instilled God in her son. 
God, excuse me, Hannah did not just make this plea before God and then be granted the son from God and then just drop God from the entire conversation. In fact, she instilled God right in his very name. The name Samuel is a compound word or a compound name. The last two letters, E-L, are a shortened form of Elohim, the name for God. But the first part of his name, Samu or Shamu, you may recognize somewhat from the word Shama. Hear, O Israel. Shama, O Israel. The name Samuel, Shamauel, means heard or beckoned by God. Every time Samuel heard his name called, he was hearing God's name right in his address. So, so Hannah made sure that God was right at the forefront of her son's mind. That's not to say that we have to name our children with names of God or even names of the Bible, but it does mean they need to hear God's name constantly. But also, Hannah showed what it means to sacrifice before her son. When he was three years old, it was time for her to bring him to the service of God. But Hannah didn't just bring Samuel and leave him there. Did you, have you noticed what verse 24 says? And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. You go, so what? You just said she took him. No, she brought stuff with her. Why? She was making a sacrifice, or at least bringing stuff to show a sacrifice. She was exemplifying, even at that tender age of three, what it really meant to sacrifice for God. Moms, do you instill God into your children? Do they hear you speak His name in love and respect? Do they see you sacrifice for Him in all that you do? And then number five, Hannah never stopped loving her child. Over in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Samuel's growing up. He's serving in the temple. He's learning from Eli. And we often teach our children in Bible school or VBS the beautiful verse that shows the heart of a mother down in verse 19 of chapter 2. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. And she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Now, because you have there at the end of the verse that she's bringing a sacrifice, we know that she loves God. But she also continued being a mom. Even though Samuel's growing up, even though he's serving in the temple, she still brought those little coats year after year. That's just what moms do. We, we, we just see such a beautiful picture of love and sacrifice in that one little phrase in one verse. And yes, over time, the relationship may change somewhat. The nature of the relationship may change. But moms never stop loving their children. They never stop looking out for ways that are appropriate to show them love and to build them up in the faith of God. When that young person isn't so young anymore, a mom can still give in a way that's appropriate. But it doesn't take away from that now adult's ability to be on his or her own, to lead a family of his or her own, and to be the leader he, need, he or she needs to be in this world. But they never stop loving their children if they're godly. We're not told anything else about Hannah. Nothing is recorded of her old age, really. Nothing's recorded of her death, really. It's, it's as if she just sort of, if this were a stage play, it's as if she just comes on the scene for, for a few moments as an important character in the play and then just rides off into the sunset only to let her influence linger. And that's the point. And that's the beauty of it. Because it's totally appropriate that Hannah fades from the scene because her best work is seen in the faithfulness of her son, Samuel. 
Again, Edith Dean wrote, Hannah gave her child to God, and after she did, slipped into the background and became immortal through her son. Now that language may be a little bit overstated, I grant that, but it makes the point. Hannah's example is one that's remarkable because she was willing to to pour herself into this blessing, this gift from God. She would name Samuel a herd of God. And then she'd be willing to fade from the scene, as it were, and let him take center stage. And it's no wonder we continue to be blessed by his life. But you can't help looking at his life and not seeing her influence undergirding all the good that he did for God's people, as we have it recorded for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. Godly mothers are ladies of great influence. If you are a mother this morning, maybe your children are tiny, maybe your children are, are gray-headed by now, but you are a godly mother, thank God for you. If you've had or have a godly mother, thank God for for her. But if for some reason that relationship isn't what it should be. Thank God for your heavenly father. Because no matter what an earthly relationship might be. We know what it could be and should be. But no matter what it actually is. You have a perfect Perfect Heavenly Father. And for Him above anyone, we should be grateful. Are you living for Him each day? Have you, no matter what relationship you might be in in life, in in the home, in, in the work world, whatever it might be, have you above all else put Him first in your life? He loves you. He wants to he wants to have you as part of his family. He wants to adopt you into his family. And be not just a heavenly father. He wants to be your eternal father. I know we have guests here this morning, but let me just take a moment to remind you of what that means, how that happens. The New Testament clearly teaches that that God loved you enough to send his only begotten son into this world. John three sixteen, And that same verse says we have to believe in him. Do you believe in him? That one that he sent, Jesus, said that we need to repent. That just means turn from sin, those things that are wrong. Are you willing to do that? To say, I haven't been living the way I should, but I'm going to turn from that now. That same son said that you need to confess, speak his name, confess his name before men. And that same son said, the one who believes and is baptized, immersed in water, will be saved. Have you done that? Many of you have. Most of us have. If you haven't, this morning's the time to do that. But if you haven't, maybe there's something in your life that's not right. That same son said, be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. Do you need to return to him? This morning, if you need to become a Christian, a follower of God, or if you as a Christian need to return in faithfulness, we invite you to come while we stand and sing to encourage you.